0: Good morning. Good morning. Hey, about six years ago here at the Bible Chapel, we started a ministry called Beyond These Walls. That actually was a capital campaign, and it turned into more of a, of a mantra for us to get beyond the walls of this church into our community, into our nation, and into our world. We based Beyond These Walls on Acts 1-8, where Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where you are, your Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we structured our Beyond These Walls with four areas. We called them four buckets. A home bucket, community bucket, a national bucket, and an international bucket. In the home bucket, we said, we got to take care of things here, or we don't have, uh, we we won't be able to send uh, people into our community or nation or world. And so we got to make sure we have room for our children. In fact, the last Beyond These Walls, if many of you have been involved in that. Right out to my right, uh, there's some digging going on, and we're getting ready to build uh, some more space for our children. And we can only do that because of your uh, participation in Beyond These Walls. In the community bucket, we said we got to reach out in our community. And so, a lot of things were done. The multi-sites were started. So, out in Robinson, uh, you're with us right now, and Wilkinsburg, and Washington, and online, we were able to do that because of Beyond These Walls you were here yesterday morning, uh, you saw kids all over the place. There are about 200 flag football players and other 60 to 70 coaches, and that was started through Beyond These Walls because we wanted to reach out in our community, intersect the lives of people, and the cool thing about that is 60% of those involved in upward sports are not at the Bible Chapel, so a great way to reach in our community. Nationally, we take the message that we do here every week with the journey, and we're able to take it around the country and even the world through the internet. We have about 100 stations here in the United States and then through the internet uh, around the world. I think we've been downloaded in about 147 countries uh, to this point. So it gives us the opportunity to take the message of Jesus Christ, which we're all about, and share it around the world. And then nationally, we have uh, things going on in Panama and in Nairobi, and in Panama in particular. Uh, we saw that uh, the orphanage there had kids being aged out of the orphanage, and the boys within a year, the boys that aged out, 70% of them were either in prison or in drugs, and 70% of the girls were in drugs or prostitution. And we said, Lord, oh, we've got to do something about that. There's a lot of opportunities around the world, but you've put this right in front of us, so let's do something about it. And so transition homes have been started, again, all because of your giving. Now, in that process, a lot of people have said, hey, wait a second, we're taking care of these kids in Panama who are orphaned, but what about the kids right here? What about the 1,500 kids in some part of the process of the foster care system in Allegheny County? What about the 350 kids in some part of the process right here in Washington County? And we heard you loud and clear and said, you're right if we're really going to be about that Acts 18 and take care of kids in Panama and in Nairobi and the Mithari slums, how can we neglect the kids right here? And so our last uh, BTW, and many of you were at those meetings, you know we shared the vision to start a, a ministry that would, that would mentor and support uh, and educate those who would like to do foster care and adoption. And as you know, the process of that many times, starts with foster care, and ends up with adoption. We also have heard from many people who do foster care, and, and, uh, and Laura and I have not uh, done that, but many of you have, and you know the emotion that goes with that. You have a little baby in your home, and the family f- literally falls in love with the baby, and then you learn that the mother is not a rehab, and the baby goes back. And just the emotion that goes with that. How do you handle that as a family? How do you teach other siblings through that emotion? So, we have started a ministry. It is launching today, and it is called Embrace. If you see anyone wearing these uh, t-shirts, they are involved in this ministry. They can answer any questions you have about it after this service at all of our campuses. Uh, We're going to be having some informational meetings. There is food there. You can bring your kids because this is all about kids, so we want that room packed with kids but we will feed you, and you can come, and you can get information about how you can be involved. And some of you are saying, my goodness, I- I'm not going to foster a child or-, or adopt a child at this stage of my life. That's fine. There are many other ways you can get involved in this. So come. Uh, it's in room here. It's in room, I think, 141. It's right after the service. Just check with your uh, in the lobby of uh, each of your campuses, and you can be involved in that. And... Uh, At every campus, there are people in these black shirts, and I'd like you to stand right now, if you would. Uh, These are people who not only are heading up this ministry, uh, these are people who are heading up this ministry because they have been involved in foster care, and many of them have taken in uh, little babies, and then uh, that has led to adoption. And so we have some tremendous people who have a passion for this, uh, who not only are organizing, but... They are in the middle of this thing, and I want you to thank them at all the campuses uh, for what uh, they are doing. Let's pray together before we open God's Word. Father, we thank You that You are God who cares for each of us intimately and passionately so much so that you would send your son Jesus Christ to go through the awful ordeal of the cross and die for our sins. And Father, since you cared for us in such a way, we are thankful that you give us the privilege of uh, of caring for others. And so we are praying your blessing on this Embrace ministry. We are praying, Lord, that... uh, Through our church, we could take care of those 1,500 kids in the process in Allegheny County. And through our church, we could take care of those 350 little children involved in the process here in Washington County. Father, we pray that you would bless this ministry because we know this with our best efforts and our best planning. And with all the money in the world, it will not be impactful at all unless you bless it, unless you use it, unless you work in the lives of those who are going to be involved in not only the leadership, but many who are going to be involved in, in the process. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would raise up your people to do the things that you call us to do. Challenging things and beautiful things. Both are involved in taking care of children. Lord, you always meet us right where we are. But we're thankful that you don't just come to sympathize with our weaknesses. You come to take us out of them. And and you make all things new in our life. And we don't have to stay in old, destructive habits and sins in our life, but you take us into newness and freshness and joy in a life that is led by your Spirit, and we are all in that process. So we pray, Father, that you'd be with us today as we look at your Word. Teach us as only you can do. Thank you for your Word. Teach us today, Father, we pray in Christ's name, amen. We're involved in a series of sermons focusing on the life of Jesus Christ. And if you are new to uh, uh, this series, the, the number sign or the pound sign is what is called in social media, the hashtag before the name Jesus. And it's simply an indicator uh, on, a, on a social media platform like Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever you use, uh, an indicator to file that particular information. The hashtag is a command that says, file this in this particular file, whatever is following the hashtag. And so we're looking through Scripture to see what, what uh, has been filed, what has been compiled regarding Jesus Christ by the writers of the gospel and the writers of all of Scripture. Our purpose in doing that is not to gain more knowledge. We don't need more knowledge. We need the knowledge here to move here, don't we? So we want to, in this series, love Jesus more intimately. We want to follow Him more passionately, and we want to obey Him wholeheartedly. Today we're going to look at the first miracle of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John. So take your Bibles and turn to John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 2. And we're going to work our way through this first miracle of Jesus. Let me give you... um, Let me set the context before we look at it. The gospel writer, John, was an eyewitness, one of Jesus' disciples, an eyewitness of all the accounts he writes. And in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written. I have chosen these in particular. I have chosen these signs. We'll see that John was all about signs. I have chosen these signs so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. John's book has 21 chapters in it, and 10 of those chapters present the seven signs to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Chapters 2 through 11 have these seven signs. These are powerful signs that caused many people in Jesus' day and many people today to trust in Jesus as the anointed one, as the Messiah, as the Christ. As I said, John liked to use the word sign... Because he wanted to draw people's attention away from the miracle, the the wonder, the marvel of the phenomenon, and drive home the point, the reason that Jesus did that particular miracle. There was a reason. Jesus did every miracle that he did. John doesn't want people to walk away from his book saying, wow, look what Jesus did. Or, my goodness, how did he do that? He wants his readers to say, now I get it. The sign is more powerful and more meaningful and more significant than the miracle itself. There are seven signs in John. Let me go through these. I'll start with number two since we're going to look at number one. Number two is the healing of the official son in Capernaum. That's in chapter four, the healing of an invalid. At the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5. In chapter 6, feeding on the 5,000. Also in chapter 6, walking on the sea. In chapter 9, healing the blind man. And then chapter 11, right before John moves into the discourse that takes Christ to the cross, raising of Lazarus from the dead. Today, we're going to look at the first one. Changing the water into wine in Cana. Now, Jesus spent his entire ministry in this area called the Holy Land. 60 miles wide, 200 miles from north to south. Grew up here in Nazareth, and as we have seen, he traveled from Nazareth when he was 30 years old down to this area. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. Then he went for 40 days of temptation. We looked at that probably in this area here. After he came back from his temptation, we saw last week that John introduced him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're told during that time that some of the disciples started following Jesus. Andrew started following Jesus. He ran and told his brother, Simon Peter, about Jesus. Simon Peter started following. There was Philip who started following. Nathanael started following. Remember, Nathanael said, can anything good come from Nazareth? He started following as well. And John, the writer of this gospel, started following. So at this time, Jesus has five disciples with him. And he makes his way back up. He would they would go this way, not through Samaria. We'll talk about that, I believe, next week. Works his way here and goes back to Nazareth. That's where we pick up our story. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee, in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. It seems from reading the text that when Jesus and his disciples got back to Nazareth, they learned that the wedding was already going on, that his mother was already there. And so they were invited. In fact, Nathanael was from Cana, so he would know people there. So they decided to make that 10-mile walk from Nazareth and join the wedding celebration in Cana. For Jesus, it was a family celebration. It seems that Jesus' mother played a very significant role at the wedding. Uh, Sometimes when you you plan a wedding and and, uh, a couple of our kids have been married, uh, friends will say, hey, you guys just go enjoy everything. Don't worry about a thing. We'll take care of everything behind the scenes, right? And it seems that's what Mary was doing here. We know that she was in charge of the servants. And she was telling the parents, you go enjoy everything, I'll take care of the servants, I'll take care of the refreshments. Probably, this was a very close relative or very, very good friends of Mary and her family. We know that Jesus's brothers were there. We know that Jesus had four half-brothers, James, they had very common names, like Jesus was a very common name. Very common names, James, Joseph, named after the dad, Simon, and Judas was one of, not Judas who betrayed him, but one of his brothers, and he had sisters as well. We don't know if the sisters were at the wedding, but we know the brothers were at the wedding. So here was a family celebration for Jesus, his whole family there. It is important to note that Joseph is not mentioned here, and most commentators believe that Joseph has already died at this point. Weddings in that day lasted up to seven days. Parents, aren't you glad we do not live in that day? And it seems that Jesus and his disciples arrived after the wedding week had started. Some commentators think they arrived at the end of the first day. Others say, no, they arrived in the middle of the week. But they arrived after it had already started. Now, when you plan a wedding, you guys know it is a lot of work. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you will. And some of you will experience it faster than you think you're going to experience it. Because it goes fast. And you got to make sure those you invite, there's plenty of food, right? Plenty of things to eat and drink. And everyone knows the process. So whatever process you've been through as a parent, just multiply that times seven, because that's what they did in that day. Seven days. Man, that would take a lot of planning. It would take a lot of money. It was expensive. Hospitality was at such a high premium in that day. It is in our day, but it was even higher in that day. And so to run out of food was unthinkable. It was a social disaster. A family would never live that down. They would be the butt of jokes and humiliation for years to come. And unfortunately, this family didn't plan well. Maybe some people who had RSVP, they weren't coming, decided they were going to come. Maybe Jesus and the five disciples tipped the scales. We don't know what happened, but we do know that in verse 3, a very um, short Dialogue takes place between Jesus and his mother, a short dialogue, but a significant one. Look at verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, we simply read the statement, they have no more wine, but the tone of her voice, the expression on her face seemed to add the words, Jesus, they have no more wine, do something about it she may have simply been asking her oldest son to go get some wine and get it back she may have been asking that she may have had something different in mind mary knew that jesus was special from that angelic announcement she knew that he was a son of god She knew that when she took him to the temple, eight days old, when he was circumcised. And Simeon uh, said, this is is the Messiah we've been waiting for. He's going to be a light to the Gentiles and the glory of the nation of Israel. She knew that a couple years later when uh, she got a knock on the door and three wise men, some strange-looking men from the east, showed up. And they bowed before the toddler, now about two years old, and they worshiped. Him. Maybe she had already heard in this little country the baptism, and that the Holy Spirit had come on him, and and that the Father's voice had been heard audibly. This is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Mary had carried silently the stigma of having a child out of wedlock for three decades. And maybe she said, Jesus, time for a miracle. That seems to be the case. We don't know for sure. John doesn't tell us for sure. But that seems to be the case because of Jesus' reply. Look at verse 4. Dear woman, in the Greek it's just woman. It's not a rude uh, comment. The NIV softens it a little bit. Dear woman. Why do you involve me? Or in the Greek, what is it to you and me? Why, why are you bringing me into this? My time has not yet come. Literally, my hour has not yet come. It's interesting, through John's gospel, he uses this a lot. It's normally after a crisis situation. And so when, when uh, in Nazareth, uh, we'll, we'll look at it in a few weeks, uh, they're getting ready to kill Jesus, and he walks through the crowd, and John says his time had not yet come. About five or six times John uses that. Here, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And his hour is his death and resurrection. That's what he came to do. That was his time. Great leader, but he didn't come so books about leadership would be written about him. Great uh, teacher, but he didn't come so we could learn the didactic process of teaching. Jesus came to save and seek, seek and save those who were lost. And he just tells Mary, why are you involving me in this at this level? My time has not yet come. Now We don't know Mary's motive, but don't miss this important truth here. Remember when Jesus was 12 years old and his parents took him to Jerusalem to the Passover feast? And that day, they were traveling from Nazareth, which is about 70 miles, walk to Jerusalem. And they would walk in big groups, so all the people in uh, Nazareth would walk together. And, and you guys know when, you, when you're together at a, at a picnic or whatever, you're, you're talking over here and your kids are playing somewhere else. Well, as they were traveling, the kids would be playing along the road. So they made their way to Jerusalem, had the great time there at feast. They're, making, they're going back. And they're, day, they're a few days out. And they realize, hey, Jesus isn't among the kids playing. Where is he? And they start to panic. And they go back to Jerusalem. And Scripture says they look for three days And then they finally found him in the temple talking, this little 12-year-old talking to the teachers, and they said they were marveling at this little boy. Well, Mary saw Jesus, and like any mom would do, said, Jesus, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have anxiously been looking for you. Remember what Jesus said? Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be... Yeah, in my father's house, or some translations, about my father's business. Well, this wedding in Cana is kind of part two to that. Fast forward 18 years. Jesus is now 30. And Jesus is saying to Mary, in no disrespectful tone or attitude, Mary, I'm now on God's timetable, not yours. The Heavenly Father, Mary, not you, will now be the one governing and guiding my activities. Mary, I don't do miracles just on a whim. And I don't do miracles just to help people out who have run out of wine. And at that time, there is this launch, if you will. Jesus has already launched his ministry with the baptism. But now, within the family... There's this launch of Jesus breaking away and saying, I am on the Heavenly Father's timetable. And Mary submitted to Jesus' authority. From here on out, it's not really Jesus, her son, but what? Jesus, her Lord. Jesus, her Savior. Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. She's now submitting. Here's the first time we see Mary submitting now. To her Lord and Savior. Do whatever He tells you to do. Now, through the eyes of John, we read the whole story. We can see the whole story, right? But when Jesus did his first miracle, there were only a handful of people who saw it. First of all, Canaan is a little insignificant village. And the only people who saw this miracle was Mary five disciples and a few servants. Look at verse 6. Nearby stood six, water, uh, six, six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Mark that down. That's important. The kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So these stone jars were there. Water was always in them. When they had these celebrations, like a wedding, they had a um, a system of ceremonial washing. It wasn't really hygienal, but it was according to the law. And so they would go, they would dip out of the water, they would pour it over their hands, and that was a ceremonial washing that they did. They would also ceremonially wash uh, the vessels that were being used. By this point, the jars are empty. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and so they filled them to the brim, and then he told them, now draw some of it out and take it to the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet would be like the head waiter, the guy who's in charge of all the food, the guy who makes sure that the best food uh, and drink uh, is served. And the servants were instructed by Mary, remember, Mary said, do whatever he says, to take this, to fill it with water, and then take the water, dip it out, carry it to the servant, this doesn't look like it's going to end well, does it? But somewhere in between, the process of them dipping it, their anxiety of carrying that over and giving what they thought was water to the head waiter, somewhere in that process, Jesus turned this water into wine, and rich wine. Look at verse 9. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn it knew. And then they called the bridegroom aside, and he, the uh, the master of the ceremony has called the bridegroom aside and has said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have, have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best. This is the very best, the best until now. Now remember, that's the miracle. But when John tells us a miracle, he has much more involved. There's a sign there. And John says, don't be so enamored by the miracle that you miss the sign. So what is that sign that we won't, don't need to miss? Look at verse 11. John says, "This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana in Galilee. He thus Revealed his glory. And the disciples put their faith in him. The Hebrew word, the common Hebrew word for glory uh, was uh, basically a scale. And a scale was for weighing things. And so something that was on the scale that was heavy uh, tipped the scale. You wanted something heavy because that represented value. That represented worthiness. And that word that was first used, this heavy uh, item on the scale, became the word glory. It means weightiness. It means magnificence. It means worthiness. And so when we say to the glory of God, we're talking about, God, you are magnificent. You are weighty. You are worthy. Well, that's here in this miracle is when the disciples saw God, Jesus's weightiness his magnificence, that he was God. He, 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 could, he could take the process of turning a grape into wine. He could, he could do it just like that. He could transform. He could. He's, with his creative powers, he could skip the entire process. And these five men... Believed in him. They put their faith, they had believed in him. They were already following him, but at this point, maybe they were just checking him out. John said he was a lamb of God. Let's go see if he really is. But here's the time they said, Oh, he is God. This first miracle. And something of greater significance is happening here. Why would Jesus use old? Ceremonial stone jars for his first miracle. Why would he do that? Well, here in this miracle, we see the sign of the Messiah. We see the old ceremonial water becoming, representing the law of the Old Testament all the ceremony, all the stuff of the Old Testament, turning into what the Bible uses to represent joy, rich wine. Old Testament law, all that, Jesus turns into the new covenant joy. The old covenant, we can say it like this, here's the sign, the old covenant water became new covenant Wine, And in this miracle, in this first miracle, in this little insignificant village in Canaan, Jesus was showing that he had come, not just to do miracles, but he had come to replace the old covenant with the new covenant. He had come to make things new. He took that old covenant ceremonial water And he made it into New Covenant, meaningful wine. The same wine, the same substance he would use to tell the disciples later, remember, this is my body of the New Covenant, representing my blood. The criticism that Jesus got often from the religious leaders was that he uh, ignored the Old Testament, right? So he healed on the Sabbath, What are you doing healing on the Sabbath? You've read the Old Testament law. You do not do that on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, yeah, unless you're what? The Lord of the Sabbath. You don't don't have your disciples eat without doing that ceremonial cleansing, pouring that water over their hands. You don't. Have your disciples pick grain on the Sabbath? What are you doing, Jesus? You are ignoring this very thing that we hold dear to, that we have taught, that we're committed to. Let's think about that. Jesus did not come to ignore or abolish the Old Testament. He said that very clearly. Matthew chapter 7. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets... I've not come to abolish the law, but to what? To fulfill them. For I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now let's think about that. How did Jesus come to fulfill the law? There are three strands of the Old Testament law. There is the civil strand of the law. There is the moral strand of the law, and there is this ceremonial or religious strand of the law. And by the way, my printing is getting a little better on this, isn't it? When I have to get that encouragement from myself, it's too late. But I just wanted you to know that. So here are three strands. The civil law in the Old Testament was for those who lived in Israel. Those who lived in a theocracy. They had kings that, that, who, who was their mediator between God and them. But God was the ruler. A theocracy. And in a theocracy you needed some civil law. So, so oxen was very important for if you, were a, if you were a farmer to have oxen, right? And so you have an ox... And, uh, and someone wants to borrow your ox. and That's your livelihood. So they borrow your ox, and while they are plowing their field with your ox, the ox dies. What do you do with that? So you have to have civil laws in the nation of Israel. And so a lot of the Old Testament, you can, you can gain great principles from them, but a lot of the Old Testament, we don't have to deal with that law regarding oxen today, do we? Jesus came and he fulfilled the civil law because he said, I came to purchase with my blood men and women from every nation and tongue and tribe and people. And so now the church, I believe there's a future for the nation of Israel, but right now the church, we are the kingdom of priests. We are the kingdom of those who represent God on this earth. Israel represented God as a nation in the Old Testament, now the church. But the church is scattered Throughout the world, it's not a theocracy we live in. The United States is not a theocracy. So, throughout the world, the church becomes the kingdom, the representation of of God, and we're told, obey the laws of your land. So, Jesus comes and fulfills the civil law of the Old Testament. He also fulfills the moral law. The moral law in the Old Testament is summed up in the Ten Commandments. Every commandment with one exception is repeated in the New Testament. Jesus, in fact, takes the, the law that dealt with the external and he, and he puts it inside us. Remember? He says, it's, you, have, you have read, do not murder. But I tell you, here, here's what that law is really about. If you hate someone so much in your heart you, you wish they were dead or you'd be happy if they died, you're just as guilty. The law says don't commit adultery. But don't pat yourself on the back if you just haven't slept with someone not your wife. You see what that law really meant? Was when you lust after someone, you've done the same thing. See, Jesus takes every one of those laws and he says, here's the fulfillment of that. Here's what it really means. Takes it to our heart. Now there's one commandment that is not repeated by Christ in the New Testament, and that one is, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. In the Sabbath, in the Old Testament, the Sabbath was a day of rest. You rested from your work. In the New Testament, the writer of the Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. What the Sabbath was to demonstrate in the Old Testament, Jesus has come to fulfill and we rest in Him. We rest in our works. We rest from our works in Him every day. He is our Sabbath rest. Now there's one more strand in the law. That's the ceremonial strand. The ceremonial strand included this, these jars that you washed your hands with and included The entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament. So here's what you sacrifice. Here's what you don't sacrifice. Here's how you sacrifice it. Here's how you take the blood and collect the blood and sprinkle it on the altar. Here's why you do all that. The sacrificial system. Well, how did Jesus fulfill the sacrificial system? The Lamb of God. Who came to take away the sin in the world one time for all time? We don't need the ceremonial system anymore because Jesus has come to fulfill it. He didn't come to abolish the civil law, the ceremonial law, or the moral law. He came to fulfill all of that. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. By the way, the book of Hebrews is an entire book rich in the Old Testament that shows how Jesus became our high priest and how He fulfills the laws of the Old Testament. Not abolishes them, but fulfills them. Verse 11, When Jesus came as high priest of the good things that are already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of blood, uh, of the blood of goats and calves, but He entered the most holy place once for all by what? His own blood having obtained eternal redemption. He did that one time for all time, not to be repeated. The blood of goats and bulls and the, and the ashes of heifers sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean Sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we might serve God, the living God. So if, if those old things in the Old Testament cleanse us outwardly, how much more does Jesus do that as He offered himself unblemished to God. For this reason, verse 15, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Man, Hebrews, I think the women here are studying through Hebrews on Tuesday mornings. Hebrews is a rich book that allows us to see how Jesus completely fulfilled the Old Testament. He is the one who makes all things new. Let's talk about that as we wrap this up. Has, uh, has Jesus made all things new in your life? Some of you are here, and you've yet to trust in Christ, and, uh, and you're still clinging on to the old stuff, legalism of the past, trying to work your way to God, trying to be good enough for God, or, or maybe you're just holding on to old sins, old addictions, old attitudes, And it's not working out well for you. And there's this hole in your heart, a void only God can fill. And you're tired of the old stuff. You're tired of going back to that same old sin, like Scripture says, like a dog goes back back to its vomit. You're tired of not having any power to, 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 to get rid of some of the addictions in your life. I'm tired of the old. See, the good news of Scripture is Jesus makes old things new. Jesus can come, and he can take the old, and he makes it new. He takes that old ceremonial water jars, and he brings joy. He takes the old sin in your life, weighing you down, and gives you freedom. He takes the darkness of addictions that you've, been, that you've been involved in for you can't think when you weren't and he relieves you from that prison. Jesus makes all things new. Isn't that what you want? Aren't you ready to start afresh? Aren't you ready to start with the board wiped clean? Aren't you ready to move from the old to the new? You can't do that on your own. The Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Have You ever seen a corpse move? Don't answer that question. Some of you may, but I've never. (laughs) I have never seen a corpse move. And Jesus said, you are a spiritual corpse. You're dead. But I have come to what? Make you Alive, and you have that opportunity today to trust in Jesus Christ, and for the very first time become alive, and not to have to not to have to cling to that old stuff for fulfillment. For believers, Jesus says this: 2 Corinthians chapter five, verse Second uh, Corinthians five, verse seventeen. If anyone is in Christ, in Christ. They have their significance, they have their security, they've been accepted, they've been forgiven, they're empowered. If anyone is in Christ, safe in Christ, they are what? A brand new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And if you're a believer, you have experienced that, you know that. You remember that day when there was a burden lifted off of your shoulders. When you realized you could not get to God on your own. But, Jesus, but God sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you on the cross. And you experienced newness. We're also not in heaven yet, are we? And so we sometimes slide back into the old stuff. We're believers. But some of those old habits... We slide back into. Some of those old addictions, slide back into. Some of those old things of the past, we know better. We slide back into. Today is a day when you can say, you know what? I'm tired of sliding. I'm tired of sliding back. I'm going to move forward again. I want to begin again to experience. It's not I'm becoming a Christian again. That happens one time. I'm a child of God. But I'm far from him. I'm a child of God, but I'm living an old life. And today I want to demonstrate. I want to move this thing to the freshness and newness that only Jesus Christ can bring.